Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, hey, everybody, it is that time again. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. You are, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, we land our fifth Democratic presidential candidate, count him five, Scott. He's a former Texas mayor. He served as housing secretary under President Obama. And I think he's the only one of the two dozen presidential candidates who's a twin. That we know of, exactly. Julian Castro will be with us in just a few moments. But first, big news this week, Marisa, in D.C. and California. And why don't we start with the national news? Uh, You might have heard. You might have heard Robert (laughs) Mueller, the special counsel uh, who we hadn't heard from in years. We know what he sounds like. And De Niro's impersonation was not off by very much. Yeah, I think some people were struck by, you know, he'd aged a bit since he was FBI (laughs) director. We all have. Uh, (laughs) That happens in D.C. (laughs) uh, A little tentative at first, but a lot of uh, conversation about whether, uh, what was he saying? You know, there was actually, I think the New York Times had an article about decoding what Mueller said, but I think clearly the Democrats heard that uh, Mueller would like Congress to pick it up from there, uh, that he was unable to uh, f- uh, to indict a sitting president based on DOJ uh, regulations and rules. Uh, but, you know, clearly an opening for the Democrats. And we Guess just what? happened we just happened to have Nancy Pelosi at KQED about two hours after Mueller spoke. Uh, and that was uh, very something. lucky timing for us. Lucky timing. You know, Ira Glass says uh, great radio is about 85 percent luck. So it was a pretty good day for us. And we took full advantage. And we talked about Mueller. But I, I, to me, that was not the most interesting thing of the conversation. Right. I mean, you know, she had put out a statement. Actually, she was working on it here right before she went into the studio in, with you in, in the ladies room. <laughs> in the ladies room. <laughs> and um, but, you know, at the end, Scott, you asked her about these videos which have been popping around on Facebook and other social media. Um, I think they are widely discredited at this point. They basically were doctored videos that were slowed down to make her appear kind of stammering and drunk. Um, they were mostly pushed by, you know, right wing media outlets and other folks who, you know, have a, a sort of political interest in denigrating Speaker Pelosi. Right, who's she's been very pop, very probably the battle. most effective, uh, um, you know, opponent of President Trump. And, you know, I, so I had to ask her about that. And uh, I was a little surprised by the toughness of her answer. First, I asked her, would you like to see those videos taken down? She said, sure. But then she went on to say this. We have said all along, oh, poor Facebook, they were unwittingly exploited by the Russians. I think wittingly. Because right now they're willing to put something on that they know to be false. And so uh, that was the shot heard around the world. <laughs> yeah. uh, Marisa, you wrote uh, something online and it was picked up immediately by the Post and the New York Times. Uh, she had not 
been asked about that video before, or at least yeah. whether whether how she felt about it, and she was very clear. She was very clear, and I think that it's interesting. I mean, I think this speaks to a bigger problem that we have right now in democratic society, which is like, how do you respect the First Amendment and police these platforms, which are incredibly powerful? Um, and so I think this is not going to be the last we heard of it, but definitely great to hear it from Pelosi herself, you know, and, and she says, and she said this to us before, you know, she's like, I'm in the arena, I can take the hits. But to me, it's troubling because if you're looking at this from the outside, you may not want to jump in and run for something. Yeah, and I think it adds fuel to people like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is calling for breaking up Facebook. You know, they own not just Facebook, but Instagram, WhatsApp, and several dozen other companies. And that's actually a perfect segue, Elizabeth Warren and presidential contenders calling for bracing, breaking up Facebook. Because to... she and like 13 other presidential yeah. candidates are coming to town for the uh, state party convention, the Democratic convention at Moscone. Uh, Kamala Harris will be the first of the 14 to speak. They each get about seven minutes. Don't, don't give them too much time, guys. Seven minutes. Woo. Um, but no, this is going to be a really interesting weekend. You know, we're going to be there along with Guy Marzarotti. Um, happy wedding guy. He got married last weekend. Happy. He hasn't gone on the honeymoon yet. But, um, you know, the, the presidential candidates are clearly going to be the sort of glitz and glamour of the weekend. But, Scott, as you've been reporting on quite a bit, and we've had two of the candidates on our show, there's a big uh, fight over who's going to be the next Democratic Party chair. The former chair resigned in disgrace last year. Um, and it's shaping up to be kind of a rehash of two years ago, both in the state party, but also the sort of Bernie Hillary Clinton. Yeah, exactly. Saw. And a little bit of an echo also of the national race where you've got, uh, you know, a couple of white men, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, vying against a field of more diverse candidates, including several women, people of color. And, you know, you got Kim yeah. Yeah, Kimberly Ellis, uh, who ran last time, lost very narrowly by about 62 votes to uh, Eric Bauman. Very bitter. She still hasn't conceded, as she told us when she talked with us. Uh, she's running against uh, Rusty Hicks, who is a labor leader down in Los Angeles. So you've got, again, that north-south divide. Um, but also the question of should women and people of color have more leadership positions in the Democratic Party, which, of course, is so dependent on voters who are both female and uh, Latinos, African-Americans and so on. And I think it, it, beyond even those sort of like identity questions, it also just you know, points to this divide within the party between the sort of institutional powers that have been around for a while in somebody like Rusty Hicks, who really came up through the labor movement and has been pushed by a lot of the same, I think, folks who pushed Bauman um, and someone like Ellis, who's really an insurgent and maybe is coming in and shaking things up. But, yeah, I would point people back. Check out both of their conversations with us. They're really both interesting, smart people, um, and it'll be fascinating to watch. All right. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, our conversation with Democratic presidential candidate Julian Castro. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. 
Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here as almost always with Marisa Lagos, and we're happy to have with us today one of the, I think it's almost up to two dozen people now running for president in 2020. He was mayor of San Antonio. He was secretary of HUD under President Obama on Hillary Clinton's shortlist for VP. Happy to have with us Julian Castro. Welcome to Political Breakdown. Great to be with you, Scott and Marisa. So uh, you uh, grew up in in San Antonio, of course, and um, your grandmother and your mom were both pretty active in politics. Tell us about them. Start with your grandmother, because she seemed like quite a force. Yeah, my grandmother, uh, she was a wonderful woman um, that basically was like another mom to my brother Joaquin and me. We grew up with her and my mom, and my grandmother had come over to the United States in 1922 from Mexico when she was seven years old, and she came with her little sister because their parents had passed away and their closest relatives brought them to the west side of San Antonio. Uh, But she uh, never finished elementary school, so she ended up working as a maid, a cook, and a babysitter and raised my mom as a single parent. And then uh, my mother uh, became the first in the family to actually go to high school and graduate, and then she had the chance to go on to college. And um, my mom was actually the hellraiser in the family. My grandmother had been fairly apolitical. Well, I mean, understandable since she came here and was probably working her fingers to the bone. But it's interesting to me that your mom, that that jump happened so quickly. Like, was education something your grandma really valued? No doubt. Uh, In fact, you know, my grandmother uh, did everything that she could to make sure that my mom got a better education than she was able to. And um, my mom ended up... uh, doing the same thing for my brother and me. Yeah. And she ran for office. Uh, she did, yeah. So my mother got involved in the Young Democrats when she was um, in college uh, in the late 60s. And then when she was 23 years old, she ran uh, on this slate called the Committee for Body Betterment that fielded four candidates for the San Antonio City Council in 1971. Now, this was before single-member districts. And so just so before there were districts, so you had to run citywide. Yeah. So very few women, very few people of color, Um, hardly anybody, unless you could field a citywide campaign, you weren't going to win. So all four of those candidates lost. But um, but my mom won. She would have been the youngest. She would have been on the city council, which was was later your claim to fame. (laughs) (laughs) But I tell people like she said that night, you know, it was April 6th, 1971. One of the reporters asked her, well, you know, what about the loss? And she said, we'll be back. So it sounds like public service and politics were both sort of something that your mom brought into the household. Like, as a kid, was this, were you guys talking politics at the dinner table? Did you and your brother see yourself going down that path? If you had asked me when I was 15, did I think I would go into politics, I wouldn't have just said no. I would have said, hell no, (laughs) (laughs) like a good Texan. Um, And the reason for that was that even though I do think that I got from my mom this sense that it's a good thing to participate in our democracy and you should do it, uh, unlike I think a lot of people grow up with this cynicism about they're all Mm -hmm. crooks or, you know, why bother? But still, I didn't see progress being made around me. You know, my mom had come from this outsider's perspective. She belonged to this third party called the Rasunida Party, which was basically a Mexican-American third party in the 1970s that was saying at the time that neither the Democratic nor the Republican Party was doing enough to ensure that 
that Latinos, especially in the Southwest and out here in California, which it had a presence, you know, could could actually participate in full equality in the United States. So, you know, there was this outsider's perspective and this sense of is anything really changing? And um, it wasn't until I got away, actually, to the Bay Area when I came to college at Stanford, when I started to think about getting involved Mm -hmm. in politics. And that was because I saw in so many ways how um, the Bay Area had more things going for it than my home community. There were things I loved about my home community, but what I saw here were higher education levels, higher income levels. This was the early 90s, and so I saw a community that was more ready for the future, I thought. Obviously, it has all of its challenges, too, right? right? But I didn't see as much of that at that time as a student at Stanford. Did it make you, in a way, see your own childhood and what you had left to come out to California in a different way in terms of standard of living and that kind of thing? Yeah, it helped me put it in context. I mean, I went to a high school that was probably 85% Mexican-American, right? Mm -hmm. So the experience that I'd had and what I'd been able to see in that sense, paled in comparison to what I could see when I became a student at Stanford and when I saw this Bay Area that was more diverse and, uh, like I said, just had a lot more opportunity to it than the home community that I had grown up in. It was the first time that I could see my home community with an outsider's eyes, and that motivated me to say, hey, I want to go back there and I want to kind of combine the best of these these worlds of a place that has higher education levels, higher income levels, is more ready for the future, but also um, feels like a community, feels like the kind of place where, um, you know, when you pass somebody on the street downtown, people still look each other in the eye. (laughs) Or, you know, when uh, somebody sneezes in a restaurant, the two or three people still say, bless you. There's still a sense of connection that I do think um, eludes communities oftentimes as they get bigger and bigger. So you guys didn't speak Spanish growing up, from what I understand. And I wonder if that was like a a decision that your grandmother or mother made on purpose. I mean, in my on my Mexican side, my grandfather certainly was like, no, 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 we're mm-hmm. speaking English. I don't want you guys to deal with the same things. Was that sort of why you think that wasn't, you know, yeah, how you I think you that up? may have been part of it. You know, when my grandmother and my mom were growing up uh, in Texas, certainly, they they used to hit kids with a ruler or spank them if they spoke Spanish in school. And, you know, and this is not unique, I know, to uh, there are other groups that were treated oh, yeah. like that along the way in our country. But that that meant that people began to emphasize the ability to speak English. And so today, my brother and I speak some Spanish. We're just not completely fluent in it. Uh, but I do find it ironic that, um, you know, today... A lot of us, some of us are judged in politics by, oh, do you speak Spanish fluently? Well, not just in when, politics. Yeah, I think it's an identity yeah. question that's sort yeah. of like still being debated in some way. You know? But it, to me, it's ironic because I think our parents and grandparents were judged by the standard of, do you speak English right. fluently? Yeah. Right? Well, nobody's like, you're not Italian if you don't yeah. speak Italian. Yeah. Like, Nobody asks me if different... I don't speak Hebrew. Yeah, right, exactly. You know? <laughs> well, and, and so it's been fascinating, you know, whether it's now running for president or during the VP process, a lot of the writing that was done. And, um, we but have I a very also good think, accent. Oh, thank you. This. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do also think that... Um, that we've entered this phase where Latinos, Hispanics, whatever label folks want to use, 
the, that the understanding of the community has to catch up with the reality out there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is Julian Castro, former HUD secretary under President Obama, and he's running for president of the United States. You've uh, alluded to your brother, Joaquin, your twin brother. Twin brother, brother, twin yeah. brother. Not just anybody. Uh, how do we know you're not Joaquin, Because <laughs> I'm better looking than my brother. <laughs> okay. You went to Stanford together. You played tennis together. I assume you played doubles together? In high school. In high school. Yeah, not, not, in not at Stanford. We weren't that good. You, yeah. Okay. So you, But you went to Stanford together. What was it like, you know, having your twin there? I mean, I would think that might be both reassuring, but also kind of, you know, make, make it a little more insular because you you know knew each other so well, you might might make it harder to know to get to know other people. It was like ninety nine percent blessing and one percent curse growing up with a twin brother. <laughs> the ninety nine percent blessing was that, I mean, he's always my best friend. You have somebody that's ready made for you that you're walking through the world with. Uh, it's it's. It is having your best friend with you all the time. And so I felt just tremendously um, happy and grateful that my brother was there when we made that journey to Stanford and had never really spent time outside of our hometown of San Antonio before. It made it that much more um, feasible or made it that much easier. The 1% curse was that I didn't feel compelled when I was young to go and make a lot of other friends. Mm. I used to joke that during high school, I would talk to two or three people, and one of them was my brother all day. And and that's pretty much, that was accurate at that age. Now, as obviously, as I've grown older, you know, we kind of, we do our own thing and have our own identity. But when we, when we were young, it was kind of the two of us and very few other people. And he is in Congress, of course. Uh, you also uh, were mayor of San Antonio. And I'm wondering, you know, you both ran for the student senate, I think, at Stanford. We did. So whose idea was that? Was that did one of you want to do that more than the other? Yeah, it was, I think the... you know, I, I, you know, I would have to get his opinion, but I think it was my idea. I'm going to claim credit for it. <laughs> He's um, not here, so that's fine. Yeah, I told him. I remember coming in probably in early 1995 because the election was April 20th and 21st of 1995, um, and telling him, you know, I think that we could run. And and I think that we could win. People will know, you know, we're twins and they remember that. Right. And um, Stanford had these weird rules. You could only campaign for seven days. You could spend only ninety dollars. The election was online. And so we figured out that the best wow, way in the 90s. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I know. Stanford, amazing. Man. Right. Of course, yeah. the stakes are a little bit lower when yeah, you have, right. you're running for uh, the the ASSU. Hey, I think that there's some uh, student college students that would debate that. <laughs> so who, who got more votes? So we tied with 811 <laughs> votes. So we haven't settled our score as to whether uh, or who's better yet. Or the election was hacked in 1995. That's why we got exactly the same number of votes. Well, I was reading one of the profiles of you, and one of your poli-sci professors in college said that even at that time, it was apparent to him that you and your brother had a really deep sort of understanding of politics. Um, and it, so it sounds like you guys sort of got involved then, but you went on to law school. Like, were you thinking even in that time as an undergrad that, okay, law school might be a step to elected office, or do you think you might just go practice law? I think at that time, I, that's when I started to think about it. And certainly when I got to law school, um, by then I was figuring on going back home and running for city council. Because you started we started when you were still in law school, right? Yeah, I had my first fundraiser for a 2001 city council race uh, on March 20th of 2000. And how, how did you go from hell no to... Hell, yeah, maybe to like, hell yes. Yeah. Because I got, I, be, my eyes were opened when I got out to Stanford in the Bay Area about what could be, mm. you know. And again, 
obviously all of these years later, I know that this area has as many challenges and inequality and other things as, as any other area. But what I saw at that time was also, wow, you're here at this great university where so many people are being so well-educated. You're here in the middle of Silicon Valley with all of these opportunities for people to make a good living. Um, it's just a faster pace. And so I wanted to bring some of that, that kind of opportunity to my hometown. That's what interested me in it. So you come back and you run for mayor and you win the second time around, right? I mean, the first time um, was a pretty tough race, it sounds like. Yeah, I ran in 05. I was 30 years old uh, trying to become the youngest elected mayor, running against a guy that was 70 years old and trying to become the second oldest mayor. And uh, we went into a runoff. And sounds sort of won. familiar. Yeah. To 2020 in some yeah, ways. Right? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I know. I, I do have uh, experience running against <laughs> an older opponent. Um, and, but he won in a close runoff. And he turned out to be a good mayor. And we had these strict term limits, so you could only serve four years. That's when I came back in 2009, and I got elected. What did you learn? Like, And what did you change? I know that you ran on a fairly different platform the second time. Um, but was there... I don't know, political lessons that you sort of took from that first race? Well, I think I learned that I needed to broaden my coalition of supporters um, and, you know, focus in a more concrete way on a vision for the future of the community and what people could take from my message. And I think also what I saw clearly in the second race is that people give you credit if you're earnest and you come back, they give you credit for having tried and failed, but having the determination to come back, you know, in an earnest way. You uh, you were mayor of San Antonio, I believe, when you were tapped to give the keynote address at the 2012 uh, Democratic Convention, President Obama's re-election campaign. And, of course, President Obama had done that uh, in 2004, which really launched his career. And I'm wondering, you know, were you thinking at that time, boy, if, you know, if I don't screw this up, this, I could be the next Obama. You know, like this is a huge opportunity for me. And, and how did you prepare for it? Yeah, well, I was definitely thinking that it could be a huge opportunity, you know, for my political career at that time. I didn't think I would be the next Obama um, <laughs> because I, I wouldn't put myself in the same category as Obama. And the circumstances weren't the same, right? He was running for U.S. Senate right. at that time when he delivered his address. Um, no, it's a crazy process. You know, worked on the speech. Um, what did you want to convey? Like, what were you, what did you what was the core message that your your mom was there? Right. And so, well, what, remember the speech was called um, "Opportunity Today, Prosperity Tomorrow," and so what I wanted to convey was this sense that every single American is worth our time and our effort and our investment, and that if we make the right investments, whether it's in education or in uh, jobs or healthcare, that all of us are going to prosper, that our nation is going to prosper in the future, and. It was special to have my mother there. My daughter was there. I was going to ask, so she was like three at the time, I think? She was, yeah. And she was, did her hair flip. I watched the speech again, and they, they go to her when you're talking about her. Like, has she she must be, what, nine or ten now? She's ten, yeah. So has she, like, looked back at that? Does she think that's pretty funny? Uh, every now and then, yeah. I'm saving it for her wedding rehearsal dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Trot it out and play it, yeah. And you have a second child, too, right? Yeah. We have a son, Christian, who was born when we were in D.C., and he just turned four at the end of the year. So, you know, there's, a, I think, a lot of debate in the Democratic Party, hand-wringing about what's the best message, how to sort of appeal to primary voters, and but also take on Trump. Um, and you, I think, 
are the only one at this point who has really made immigration the centerpiece of your platform. And I just want to ask you about the strategy behind that, because this is something that the president clearly saw as a winning strategy for him, which was a very divisive one. Um, And, you know, I don't think it's as easy necessarily as a sell on the side you're talking about, because it's a lot more complicated when you talk about some of the, the ideas you have about changing our laws and changing the way we approach this. What was this like? What's the strategy? What's the thought there? Why do you think that's a winning plan? Uh, because if you can beat him on his core issue, he has no other path to win the nomination. He thinks that he's going to use the issue of immigration to win a narrow electoral college victory in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And I believe that, especially in the suburbs of a lot of those communities, that enough people have turned on him. Uh, and that with this, including on this issue, if we can explain it in a compelling, positive way um, and assure people that, of course, we're always going to have secure borders, but that we should treat people with compassion instead of cruelty, that we can beat him. It seems that you know some issues like the border wall are pretty clear. People are against that. Uh, but on some of the issues, uh, the illegal border crossings, for example, I mean, it seems like even Democrats mostly say, well, we have to have strong borders and security and all that. But one of the things in your platform is to decriminalize the unauthorized crossings of the border. Explain why you think that's important. Yeah, you know, most people don't realize that um, from 1929 to 2004, we had this law in place that uh, criminalized, and it's still in place, but it criminalized border crossing. But we actually didn't enforce it as a crime. It was just a civil violation. And this was post 9-11 when we started really treating it as a crime. So that is something pretty new. A lot of the problems that you see with this over-incarceration of people separating little children from their mothers, the huge backlog that we have in the court system around immigration that leaves people living in this country in limbo, undocumented for a long time, a lot of that flared up after we started treating this as a crime. And so what I'm saying is we're still going to enforce it, but we're not going to enforce it as a crime. We're going to invest in Uh, judges and support staff so that we can give people an answer on their asylum claims or if they're undocumented sooner to reduce that backlog. But what is that? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, and we're going to treat people humanely. We're not going to separate these families. We're not going to take away these little kids from their mothers. What does it mean, though, for people who are not seeking asylum, but who just wanted to come here to work, you know, and then they get caught under this policy? Like, what would you how would you treat them differently? Well, they're still they're still part of the system. So, I mean, they still go through a court process. And, uh, you know, uh, I would put people who are undocumented in this country, whether they're dreamers or they're not dreamers, as long as they haven't committed a serious crime on a path to citizenship that they can earn. Uh, But there is still a court process that they go through. So people wonder, well, is what you're talking about no enforcement? No, it's not. There's still all of the things that we have today, except it's not considered a, it wouldn't be considered a crime. It would be a civil violation. And that would actually make our system more effective than we are today. Do you feel like being from a red border state, like you have more ability to talk about this issue? And, and can you talk a little bit about like what people and what you hear in Texas? Because I think in California, it's a very different border state, a very different political reality here. Well, I- You're right. I mean, coming from a border state, first of all, whether it's Texas or California, I think in these border states that we're we're a little less likely to respond to the fear and the paranoia that this president is trying to stoke up based on the issue of immigration, because people live with it all the time. They know that we don't have a bunch of axe murderers uh, and, you know, 
<laughs> criminals that are coming across the border. There are some, and we need to make sure that when that happens that they're dealt with. But by and large, we have people who are coming here seeking a better life, either trying to work or trying to get asylum, and that we can deal with it in a rational and compassionate way and be effective. I think that's what you get from living in a border state and seeing it all the time versus, uh, you know, maybe not having as much firsthand experience sort of with hearing it. hearing it in the ether. Yeah. yeah. Before we let you go, i got to ask you a question about music. Uh, we've read that you once took a CD of theme songs to a New Year's Eve party, uh, like the Golden <laughs> the Girls and Cheers. Will never leave me. And that you're a fan <laughs> of Kenny Rogers and Barry Manilow. So yeah, but what's on, yeah, what's somebody on your, asked my, it's not one, of my, one of my friends, <laughs> not even several, one of my friends about, oh, what kind of music does he like? And he cited this. <laughs> he threw you under all, the bus. Was, I had a CD of TV theme songs that may have had those on there, but that's not why <laughs> I had it. I had, you know, it also had like a whole bunch of like actually good. What was TV. the best stuff on that disc? Uh, I think with that one, you know, there were some pretty good theme songs like um, <laughs> Different Hill Strokes oh, okay. and uh, Night Rider, the Night Rider theme song, right? Yeah. So uh, who would play at your inauguration? Let's let's give you oh, a chance to start to clear plan, the field. Plan the yeah. inaugural be like a combination of like Jay Z. And uh, Jennifer Lopez. Okay, this is way hipper than Barry Manilow. You you redeem yourself. (laughs) All right, Secretary Julian Castro, thank you so much for coming in. Okay, thanks a lot, y'all. Well, that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producers this week are Guy Marzarati and Jeremy Siegel, and our engineers are Rob Spate and Seal Muller. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Well, that's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time, everybody. Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, 
Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.